Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. It is offered freely. All episodes of this show are offered freely. They are made available to you free of charge. Hundreds of conversations with great writers, nearly 600 episodes and counting, all of it free of charge. I invite you to support this podcast. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Become a patron of the Other People podcast. What do you say? Please? You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. They don't win. Struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person. Welcome. Right. Hello. Right. This is Brad Listy. This is the Other People co- uh, Podcast. How's it going? I have Lydia Fitzpatrick on the program today. She has a debut novel out on Penguin Press. It is called Lights All Night Long. And it has been generating a lot of buzz. It has been getting rave reviews. The Los Angeles Times calls it a luminous debut. Anthony Mara the author of uh, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena, calls it utterly brilliant. It's just one of those books. There's a lot of excitement around it. And Lydia happens to live right here in town, not too far from me. And she was kind enough to come over. So it was wonderful to meet her. Her book is excellent. I uh, encourage you to listen to our conversation and learn all about it. So that's coming up in just a moment. Before we get there, I do have a bit of mail. Uh, I have a listener named Josie who writes... Uh, Hi, Brad. I hope this finds you well. I'm wondering if you've ever considered doing transcriptions of the interviews. Obviously, you don't have time to do this, but maybe an intern? It just occurred to me how great it would be to be able to read the interviews as well. Have you not done this because it might conflict with people listening to the episodes, or is it a time issue? Signed, Josie. So... Thank you, Josie. This is a question I get somewhat frequently, and it's uh, it's been on my mind. I would love to offer transcripts. I would love to have complete transcripts of all the episodes, not only uh, to share with listeners, but also to potentially use for a book. I've often thought of putting together some kind of book based on or rooted in the interviews that I've done for this show, something that's kind of a collage. But uh, the problem is that 
you know, it sounds like something you could get an intern to do, but, you know, in practice, uh, it's a lot of work and it's really tedious and nobody, you know, it's hard to find somebody who's going to sit down and do all that work for free. It's, it's hours and hours and hours of work to transcribe these shows, even if you're a really fast typer. So I just don't have budget for it. And that's why, you know, that's part of the reason why I'm asking for people to support the show. I, I don't mean to, you know, drop that in there gratuitously, but it is true. Like, if I can get more people to uh, become patrons of the show, uh, I can assure you that a good portion of those resources would be directed back into things like transcripts. That would be one of the first orders of business if I had enough weekly budget for it. And especially weekly budget retroactively. You know, I have almost 600 episodes to transcribe at this point. So, uh, that's the best I can tell you. And, uh, hopefully, you know, I get rich sometime in the, uh, near future <laughs> and I can just do it. But, uh, I would love to have transcripts and hopefully it'll get done, uh, at some point. So thanks for listening and thanks for writing in. Uh, if anybody out there wants to write to me, the address is letters at other If you have questions or uh, thoughts on the show, or if you just want to tell me a story. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest today is uh, Lydia Fitzpatrick. Her new novel, her debut novel, is called Lights All Night Long, and it is available now from Penguin. Here she is, folks. This is Lydia Fitzpatrick. So I actually came to the novel sort of sideways. I had written a short story in which Sadie, who is a character in the novel but not the protagonist, um, was the main character in the short story and had published it. Uh, but I had this sense of, of unfinished business. Like, I wasn't done with her. I wasn't done with her world, which, which was Louisiana. And so... I started sort of uh, exploring her story in long form, and I wrote... Are you from Louisiana? No, my dad's from Louisiana, though, so I oh. visit a lot. I have a ton of family in New Orleans. It was actually the first stop of my tour, which was really fun. Um, and then I've got some family in New Iberia, too. Okay, um, so is it New Orleans and New Iberia? Yeah, and yeah. I've looked it up like quickly, and I don't know if I did it. It's an imaginary town. Okay, so, so Leffy... Leffy, Leffy which, is imaginary. It sounds As... very Louisiana, and I was like, wait, okay, so if, if it's an imaginary town 
Like, what is it, you know, an approximation of? It's it's kind of like me taking all the elements of Louisiana, Louisiana that I wanted and setting it in central Louisiana. I didn't want it to be in, in southern Louisiana. Um, and, you know, tying in the refinery, because that's something that I wanted to link to this town in Russia, Berlozhniki, which is also an imaginary town. Um, and, yeah, you know, I think it's hard if you set... Um, something's in a, in a specific place, but you want to take some liberties with, say, the layout, um, which was crucial for some plot points in the novel. You know, I think, I think you, you have readers who are understandably annoyed if you do that. So, um, you know, I was, I was setting it in New Iberia basically for a while. And then I decided that I needed to, to tweak the town in some ways to have it, have it work for the plot. So, um, why central, why central Louisiana? Like, what's the, um, because of, of the geography. I didn't want it to be um i didn't want it to be new orleans i wanted it to to be a place that could be a refinery town but i also didn't want it to be um uh so overwhelmingly um uh cajun so that was something where i felt like i I, that was something i wanted um to avoid because it's something i'm really interested in but it wasn't something that i'd done a lot of research about and so i wanted it to be central louisiana it felt like it was a place i knew and yeah, where I felt more comfortable setting it there. Yeah, my parents, my my mom's from like I guess what would qualify as suburban Baton Rouge. My dad is from Morgan City, which is southern Louisiana, right? Yeah, like way down yeah. in like yeah. you know, the bayou. Yeah. So I grew up going down there. It's a uh, it's a unique place. It really is. Yeah. No, it's a place I love, and I think um, for me also, I felt like I had a I had a good distance uh, from it. Like I felt like I could be aligned with Ilya's character. Um, Ilya being the... Ilya is the protagonist of the novel, and he moves to Louisiana from Russia. And so if I were writing about my hometown, I feel like it's hard to get any objectivity um, uh, on a place, you know, that you have such familiarity with. So Louisiana felt like a place I could have a little objectivity, but also have some familiarity and also have, you know, the resource of calling up my family and being like, am I getting this right? You know, or am I, am I fully off base or, you know, where, where is the the book falling? So I I had, you know, them as early readers too, which was obviously a great resource. No, it like felt very familiar to me. Like as somebody who spent a lot of time down there, I was like, okay, well, she must have family or it must have like spent some time down there yeah yeah um so you have uh Ilya coming over as an exchange student and you know i've met exchange students through the years uh especially when i was younger or when i'm traveling that you know i meet people from germany or france and they'd say oh i did an exchange program yeah. in the states and i'm like oh where you know where'd you go and it's always like someplace in the middle of nowhere yeah yeah like, i'm like oh really they yeah. sent you there like yeah. what, did, what did you do and, yeah you know, so it, it, that made some sense to me too. You know, you have this person coming over from Russia. Where do they wind up? They wind up in some, you know, town in the middle of Louisiana. Right, you know? right. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. It's got to be quite a culture shock. And yet I do feel like there's some synchronicity somehow between the places. I don't know. Like Russia, like it's not a one for one, but did you conceive of it that way? Did yeah. You, did you think of it in, as like a kind of synergistic relationship? So, or? you know, I think at first I thought of them pretty much in opposition to each other. Um, and I really liked having two such different settings. It kind of energized the writing. I wrote the novel as it appears. So I wrote a chapter set in Louisiana, a chapter set in Russia, basically alternating back and forth. And it's sort of like having a new beginning each time you switch to a different setting. It just gives you this little, this little extra 
momentum, or at least it did for me in the crafting. And then, you know, as I got deeper and deeper into the settings, these these commonalities emerge. So, you know, most obviously they're both petro economies. They both are hugely dependent on oil for for their wealth. Um, but that wealth isn't necessarily trickling down to the inhabitants of these regions. Um, and and you know, there there are also a lot of vices that t- the two places have in common: um, addiction and poverty. And you know, the the it's a lot sol- of blight in Louisiana. Like there visible, is. visible blight. You yeah, know. and there's you know, there's a history of corruption in Louisiana, and um, so that was another you know tie that 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 I felt comfortable kind of delving into as the novel progressed. Yeah. You ever been down there during like a political season, like where they have I, all the signs out? And just yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you know, and it, it, it is very much a place that's, that's like steeped in corruption. And, um, you know, I remember my grandmother telling me stories about Huey Long and her, her mother was a very, um, like vocal anti Huey political person. And, um, so, you know, I think it's just something I've sort of grown up being aware of and that, that, and that, you know, I think was a tie that I maybe wasn't conscious of at first and then, you know, became more conscious of as the novel progressed. So you did not grow up in Louisiana? No, I grew up in D.C. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Norfolk, Virginia, until I was like eight or nine. And then we moved up to D.C. Okay. Yeah. And so um, like, what did your folks do? Like they got you, like got them from Louisiana, your dad from Louisiana to Virginia. So my dad left Louisiana. Um, I think he left for college and didn't go back. He, um, he wasn't much of a partier. And I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of my family there likes to, likes to party. And he, I think he wanted to have a little bit of distance and, um, he loved the place and we went back a lot and, uh, his, his parents were there and he's one of four brothers and the, all three brothers were there at various times. Um, and my brother is now there, but in Louisiana, but yeah, in New Orleans. Yeah. He moved out of college. So he's there. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think my dad just maybe wasn't, wasn't sure that he wanted to spend his life there. Yeah. That's, I mean, you know, everybody, my dad was, my dad got out. I mean, he, he I don't know if he necessarily like had a strong aversion to it, but I think he also wanted to see what else was going on. Yeah. So he moved out and never, never went back. Yeah. My, um, my grandfather actually wrote for the times Picayune. So he, uh, he left for a job at the wall street journal at, at one point too. So my dad grew up in new Orleans, but also on long Island. And then his dad, um, ended up in Norfolk, Virginia, um, working for a newspaper there. Um, and then, so your dad's a writer. So no, my, my grandfather was a writer yeah, for the times Picayune. Yeah. Um, he started as a, as a paper boy for the times Picayune during the depression and then wrote articles for them and he won a Pulitzer prize for them eventually. And yeah. And then he got to go work at the wall street journal. But, uh, he, he, I think, um, was sort of lucky to get out of new Orleans, um, for, for that phase of life. Uh, I think it was good for him. And then my dad, you know, was a kid at that time. So he, he was in Long Island as a kid and then went back and then left again. Um, so it's an interesting, I mean, I feel like, I mean, it's such a distinct culture. And I was just talking to my parents about this the other day where I was like, wow, you know, you guys came of age in the sixties, but you came of age in the sixties in Louisiana which is entirely different than coming of age in the sixties on in Berkeley or New York. Yeah. Like they didn't get the cultural, I mean, I guess that stuff, it moved across the country from the coasts or whatever fairly rapidly, not with the speed that it would today because of the internet and everything. Yeah. But it was just different. 
Yeah, I think, you know, I think it still is, is pretty different. I mean, I definitely, you know, go back and feel a very different, like I'm in a very different cultural situation than I am here in LA. Right. Um, you know, like not everybody's not drinking kombucha. And, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think, I think that that's still there, but that's, that's part of what I love about it too. I mean, it's, it's, it can be very insular in a way that's kind of fun when, when you go there and you know, a lot of people there and, um, that can be a, yeah, that can be a fun environment. I feel a lot of yeah. affection for what like for Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm very torn. Sometimes I, I want to be there. I feel like life could be really easy there. You know, you just like return to the bosom of family. Right. And, um, <laughs> Especially yeah. like, uh, yeah, like having like a lot of extended family around and there's a, there's like a nice like social ease or something. I don't know. I go back and forth. Like I've had conversations with friends of mine from the South, not necessarily from Louisiana where I'll sort of idealize it. And I'll be like, everyone's got such an easy way about them. And yeah. you, you have people over and it's not like some big stress. Yeah. Like in yeah. Los Angeles, it's yeah. like, Oh my God, like, would we really want to go to this party? And you know, and down there it's like, well, come on over. And yeah. I just feel like it's easier, but then yeah. they're like, you know, but people aren't as nice as you think. You know? I just think my family there's more social than I am. I'm like, I don't think I would survive. Like I'm like yeah. a, a once a week, I want to see other people type. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, I feel like I would just be overwhelmed. And they would be like, why don't you ever come? And right. it would just, yeah, You're devolve. Like, I, I need to like lie down for yeah. a couple of days after yeah. one like extended interaction. Um, so, okay. So you, you know, you have a, like a writerly gene pool with a grandfather who's like yeah, a Pulitzer a journalist, journalist. Yeah. Um, and you are raised, like born and raised in Virginia? Yeah, I was born in Brooklyn, born oh. in Brooklyn. So then we moved down to Norfolk when I was, I think, two or three. And then uh, from Norfolk up to Northern Virginia. And what did your yeah. dad, like your non-partying dad, what did he do <laughs> he, in Norfolk? He, he was a lawyer. Okay. Um, yeah, he was a lawyer. Like what um, kind of lawyer? I think he was a corporate lawyer. He died when I was young. And then um, he he worked in international corporate law briefly in, in Washington. Oh, yeah. how, how young were you when you lost him? Twelve. Oh, yeah. What happened, yeah. may I ask? Um, yeah, he uh, he had cancer of the heart, which is very rare. What? Um, yeah, when he died of it, I think there were 11 people who had had died of this at the time. And they think maybe it was linked to asbestos, but... Um, Aren't sure. So Louisiana would be a place where there's like asbestos just hanging around. I, I feel think like. actually, I think it was our, our place in Brooklyn had like a furnace covered in asbestos in the basement. So uh -huh. he would like sweep it up or something at night. I don't know, but that's, I think that's conjecture. So you never know. Um, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah. That stinks. Yeah. Um, but formative experience. Very formative. Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, I, I always write fatherless characters. So I feel like it's, it's, proved like an emotional way into a lot of my characters for me. Well, I was reading, uh, you know, I was doing a little bit of due diligence and was reading about the relationship between Ilya and his brother mm -hmm. in the book and how you related to that particular relationship in a kind of one for one way, like after the loss of your father, sort yeah. of like being like super, which I thought was like very sweet and heartbreaking, being like super protective of your older brother. Yeah. And um, that makes psychological sense to me. And it's also just like, as a parent, you're like, oh, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, and my brother was not even really someone I needed to worry about, but I fully did. Yeah. Like, we wrap him yeah. in bubble wrap. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And my mom too. Like, yeah. So did you yeah. guys, like when uh, your father passed away, 12, I mean, it's always tough to lose a, a parent any age but especially as a child and 12 as a, you know, you're right there at the turn of adolescence. Like, how did you 
how did you deal? Um, you know, I think I, uh, I think I dealt by being really protective of, of my family. I think that was kind of my main coping mechanism. Like I had, um, you know, this sort of litany of, of risks that I would recite before bed. I mean, I was basically praying, but I was an atheist, so I didn't like think of it in those terms that I would be like, please don't let them get hit by a car. Please don't, you know, just this, this litany of things. And I felt like if I forgot one, you know, I would have to like really make up for it the next night and just kind of this, like this this ritual of did it soothe you yeah it totally soothed me it totally soothed me um but then like if i ever added one i would have to add that one every night so naturally like this would become a really long process um and i also wouldn't ever stay home alone i think i was like really worried about the idea of you know people coming back um and so i feel like you know it's about risk limitation like you should, and you turned out to be a writer. You should, you should have been like an insurance person. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I don't know. I feel like assessing risk when you have someone die of something so rare is probably like not the best. You probably would be really irrational about it. Um, but, but yeah, no, I think, you know, I was like just a very, a very clingy. That was how I dealt with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, my son, uh, has some health issues. My daughter is like, like, anxious um not like crazy anxious but like i think both my wife and i I think everybody's got a little bit of anxiety but we look at her and i'm sometimes like she anxious because of his disabilities and is she like responding to it and how do we manage against that and right yeah going to bed at night is scary for her sometimes yeah so i'm like looking i'm like maybe she should have like a risk like she what did you do just like (laughs) yeah you you tick through a list of yeah yeah things that you need to yeah well now they have these stuffed animals where you can like unzip them and like stick your worries inside i was actually thinking of getting my daughter one of these Uh, like you can like write them down and stick i'm sure i would have loved that as a kid yeah Um, I'm, i'm like some you know you never know as a parent like how much of it is uh genetic or environmental or responding to circumstances and like what are we supposed to do like do i or maybe it's a good thing like my kids have no anxieties or fears and i'm like now i have to like triple down on the anxiety because i'm like they literally just have no conception of danger oh my god yeah like she hears everything like you basically just can't talk in our house she's like well why did you say that and i'm like where were you she's like i was in my room <laughs> I heard you through the door. <laughs> she's in here right now. <laughs> yeah, no, she's got this place wired, I'm sure, you know. So, um, well, I mean, it's good. And, like, you turned out, like, uh, well-adjusted. Your mom must have, like, done a good job of, of writing the ship. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I think I, I did. And in some ways, you know, I think... Um, I think like death can be easier, at least in my case, I feel like it would have been easier for me to handle than say divorce. Like, I feel like, um, you know, that that was not a choice. Right. And that was, so I, I don't know. I think, um, it, yeah, it took some getting, some getting over, but, um, well, and it's also like some, there's something about the resilience of children. Um, like, you know, you say it would have been easier than a divorce because it, it wasn't a choice, but there's also, uh, I think some truth to this idea that, uh, you know, kids can handle it. It's the adults, yeah. the adults yeah. are like, oh, yeah. you know, so, yeah, it's true. Um, yeah. so maybe you had some sort of, uh, you know, strength as it like kid strength or something yeah. and a, yeah. sim- a simplicity of, um, there's, there's, I think a, a simplicity of heart or something. Yeah. Children. Well, and I think, you know, kids, kids are, are able to escape in a way that adults can't. I mean, I read a ton, right. You know, you can just like enter into other universes. Um, and I think that can, that can, 
via a salve in a way. Yeah. And, and you had the one older brother? Yeah, I have one older brother and then my mom has since gotten remarried, so now I have all these all these step siblings, which is fun. And what yeah. did your mom do? Did your mom work? Was she working? She so she was a Russian historian. So oh, right, um right. yeah. So she lived and studied in, in Moscow during the Cold War. Uh and when I was little she was working on a nonfiction book about Russia. Um about uh, how did she get into that? Is she of Russian descent? She's not, no. She grew up in Rochester, New York and she just happened in sixth grade to pick Russia as like the country that she wrote a report about. And and then in middle school, I think she had a, a, a history teacher who happened to be Russian and she convinced him to start a Russian language class. So she learned Russian from middle school through high school and then got to go there in high school. And then again, um, during, dur- right out of college, I guess. Yeah. Right, right out of college. Okay. Two things come to mind. One is that travel is such an impactful experience at any age. Yeah. You know, so like it, it like has lifelong ramifications to go to a place yeah. like that's outside of your, especially like a place that occupied is at the height of the cold war, such a large percentage of real estate in the American psyche. Yeah. You know, yeah. Russia, like what is Soviet union? What is this place? Yeah. It's the enemy, you know? So to go there and to see it, I'm sure disrupted all sorts of preconceived notions and made her even more curious. Yeah, and like I mean it opened a lot of a lot of doors for her too. So she got to go to Princeton before it became co-ed based on her her knowledge of Russian. Um they had this program called Critical Language Girls where they had like 12 girls come to Princeton <laughs> who spoke Cold War languages that basically. Like a band name it or doesn't something. it? Yeah. <laughs> um and so they lived with a divinity student and his wife um and were kept under like very close watch. Were they cultivated um, by the government? You know, I. She says no. So no. She she's CIA. She says <laughs> this, this is what everybody thinks. No, she says no. Nobody approached her. I think that that might have been part of the deal with the critical language girls that that was not acceptable. Hmm. Um, so I'm not sure. Um, I'd have to ask the other ones. Okay, so yeah, that's, I'm getting nowhere with my mom. Yeah, that right. no, she's yeah. a, she's a, like a vault. <laughs> um, so that's like thought number one. Thought number two is a little bit more woo woo. And like, I'm always a little bit like prone to magical thinking when somebody has like a weird, um, interest, not weird because it's weird, but just weird because of it. it's so early to be interested in the mm-hmm. Soviet union and yeah. you're in junior high. Like I'm thinking like, maybe she's thinking a past life. Do you ever believe in that kind of stuff? Like maybe mom in a past, uh, incarnation, or though I guess you're an atheist, you're not into all that, but it's like, yeah. I don't know. Part of my brain goes there. Like at some point she was incarnated in Russia, you know? Yeah. I mean, it definitely does give me an awareness of the weight of all those tiny choices, you know, that she just picked it in sixth grade. And now, I mean, a a decade of my life basically has been writing this novel set in Russia. That's how long it took? I mean, uh, no, it took seven years, but it feels like a decade. That's okay. You can round up. You can round up here on the other people podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, yeah, I mean, the the idea that such a teeny choice, you know, or such a, it's it's even chance, you know, and that that trickles down in this way. I mean, that definitely sticks with me. And I think like, what are all the choices I'm making that are going to impact my kids' lives for seven years? Like, you know. Well, it's it's a superb book and uh, you must, and you have your mom there to like sort of vet the Russia parts. I do. You know, although she was in, she lived in Russia in a very different time. So, um, so I actually used other, other readers for the, for the, for the, my Russia. Did you uh, go? Did you, did you travel? Yeah. There? Yeah. So we went in the mid nineties, um, during, during perestroika and, um, you know, I was a teenager then and I knew in a very 
sort of like middle school civics way um, that Russia was in a transition. Um, but the forms that it took were pretty striking. Like we uh, we were staying with an uncle of mine who was living there then, and. Uh, there was a dead body in the courtyard of our apartment building one morning, and there were old men and women selling like their Soviet medals at well, a street why, market. Why, why and, the dead body? Um, you know, I think there, there was a lot of crime then. Um, there was a lot of, of um, fighting between different factions of the mafia, between, you know, if you if you owned a business, you had to have what was called a roof, which was basically somebody you paid a certain percentage of your profits to to protect your business. And that went from like the tiniest kiosk all the way up. And so it wasn't um, like somebody had an aneurysm in the courtyard. No, it was like no. somebody got whacked. Yeah. And there were, you know, there were bodyguards with guns at the restaurants. And it was just it, there. There was a lot of um, of drama. And and there was also, you know, like a real palpable hope. Um, this was this was in the mid '90s, so there's this sense that, you know, Russia could move in 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 a great direction. Um, this was Boris Yeltsin. This was Yeltsin. Yeah, he had just been reelected. Um, so so you know, the dynamism of that was really striking to me. I mean, I'm coming from suburban DC, like a a place of of complacency and malls, yeah, right. and, you know. So that I, I was very struck by it, and then then I went back with my mom as my translator in 2008 on a specifically on a research trip, um, and so the the book is bookended by those two visits. Um, Ilya is born in the mid 90s, and he leaves in 2008. Um, yeah, and it was. I mean, that span of time is really fascinating to me too, because by the time I went back in 2008, Putin had had been in power for a while. There was this real sense of, of surface stability, right, of this um, this idea that, you know, Russia had a chance to regain its role on the world stage. And I think um, you could feel the the allure of a Putin, um, even as you, you know, kind of became increasingly aware of the loss of civil liberties and, and free press and, and the things that, you know, the, these freedoms that he's undermining. Well, settling. it was like that, you know, you have the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and then you have this period, which I'm imagining is like kind of a, a frenzied period of high energy and excitement and possibility, but also instability. Yeah. And yeah. there's a vacuum that's created that they yeah. didn't necessarily have infrastructure for or, you know, uh, ideology for, human yeah. resources for it. So that vacuum got filled. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it was a really long period of instability, too. I mean, a decade with, with these these um, economic shocks that are, you know, like the the um, the economic collapse in 98, like puts the Great Depression to shame. So it's like, when you think of that length of time spent with, you know, a, a lot of Russians in extreme poverty, you understand how someone like Putin, who is promising certain aspects of stability becomes really appealing. And strong man. Yeah. And you know, the same thing, I think, in maybe not exactly the same way, but um, similar psychodynamics at work with Trump, you mm -hmm. know, after the 2008 recession, yeah. And a failure to address the um, the pain and the economic needs of, you know, this wide swath of people who were, uh, you know, brutalized by it. Yeah. And yeah. That, that, you know, that's a dangerous combination. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, Putin also knows how to how to market himself and how to play to people's, you know, more nationalistic impulses in the same way that Trump does. So. So when did you start this novel? I started the novel. So, so there were these early incarnations where Sadie was the main character. And for about a year and a half, I worked on probably a half dozen beginnings of the novel in that form. So I probably wrote like 600 page openings with Sadie as the main character. And that took, 
a year and a half or so, and this was um, 2010. Uh, and then once I wrote a scene in which Sadie met Ilya, Ilya really quickly took over the novel. Like I, I could sense that I'd hit on something that had like energy and depth, and I, I went with it. Um, and I started writing his backstory. And from that point on, it was probably another four and a half years of of drafting before I got to you know a pretty polished first draft. Okay, so yeah. 2014, 2015. Yeah, still yeah. preceding Trump. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, I talked to, I want to say it's Adrian Selt was a guest on the show a while back and her, I want to say Russia figures into her book, but the conception of her book preceded. Yeah. Like all of that, all this happened in America. And so like, how does it feel to you to be writing this book that is so concerned with Russia right? and then to have this time in American history be so concerned with Russia. Yeah. I mean, I think we're always concerned with Russia. I think there are these like teeny respites. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, it's a huge coincidence, but I also think, you know, uh, it's my hope that, you know, in reading the book, people can see past this, these sort of like resurrections of these cold war stereotypes like that, that to me is the big danger of assuming that because, um, of the Kremlin's activities, you know, that, that the ordinary Russian has anything to do with that. Um, and, you know, I think too, it's important to, to think of, um, the, the sort of like myriad views in Russia towards Putin, towards America, towards, um, democracy and capitalism. And, you know, not to assume that everyone has the same conception of democracy and capitalism as the end goal, um, in the way that we do. And, uh, have you read Svetlana Alexievich's Secondhand Time? Mm-mm. So this book, this, this book was really instrumental in writing the novel. And it's, it's a collection of oral histories taken from 90, 1991 to 2012. Um, and it's all, all of her questions are focused on the collapse of the Soviet Union, but just the, like, the, the vast, you know, um, variance in responses and in the way people feel about the collapse of the Soviet Union and their hopes for what, um, the future might bring. It was, it was fascinating to me to, to read this and to realize, you know, there isn't, there's no monolithic view there about us, about, you know, the Soviet Union, about communism, about capitalism. It's, it's, it's as varied as, you know, our own political situation. And so I think, you know, that to me is the big danger in sort of this, this idea of like, resurrecting Russia as the enemy is, you know, starting to think of, of Russia and Russians in a monolithic way. Um, I think to me, um, cause Russia bothers me and anybody listening to this show has heard me like bleed about it. Um, like the attack on the election bothers me, Yeah, but I don't conflate that attack with the Russian people. Yeah. This is yeah. Putin. And, and the thing about it, like where I was really blind and had like, just, I just didn't have any info or I wasn't reading the right things is uh, I didn't have a clear sense of the mafia state mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And I also didn't have a clear sense of like the global concerns of the Russian mafia and right. how they'd infiltrated, like, right. especially over in New York. You right. Know, the New York bank. Yeah. Like they yeah. rolled up the Italian mob. Yeah. You know, after yeah. John Gotti, I'm starting to piece it together, but I'm like, oh, wow. Like, well, and they were like laundering, like, I think $10 billion through the New York, I think it was New York bank. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it's a global, it's just a global enterprise and it's basically just like a global mob enterprise. Yeah. It's not, it's not a nation of people that we're up against. Yeah. No. Um, no. And I think, you know, that that's part of kind of what emerged from perestroika is this like 
this extreme disparity in the wealth and in you know there there are oligarchs and there are, are is a really small percentage that's that's incredibly wealthy and that is engaged in in this sort of activity but it, but it does trickle down there in a way that it doesn't in the states because i think there wasn't this this infrastructure to support capitalism so um you know the idea of like if you have a, a small business you have to pay for protection and and so on up the chain and then of course like you pay for police protection or and and the and the government becomes involved in that in that mafia system in in a much more I think overt way. Okay, so yeah. I have to press pause just because you just said all that, and we have to put like tinfoil hats on for a second. Okay, because I'm willing to go there with conspiracy theory okay. around American politics. So I just want to put an asterisk <laughs> next to this bit of the podcast, like, um, and and make it clear that I'm completely in conspiracy theory land. Okay, but uh, Howard Schultz. Okay. This weird, like, kind of rogue candidacy, which is sort of like, he's saying things that, like, if Trump had, like, written a script for, like, a rogue element right. to come in, you know, that would be somewhat close to that. It just feels like, by the way, there's squirrels running on the roof. <laughs> okay, oh, okay. It's like, is it, is it him? <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's Howard Schultz. He's, uh, he just landed on our roof. But uh, what I was thinking about when, you know, because he's, like, and I don't think his candidacy is going anywhere, but because of all that has gone down, my mind is sort of primed to be suspicious. Right. And not without reason. You know, there is connectivity and there are back channels and there is weird criminal shit going down. Yeah. And yeah. there's weird stuff around money. Yeah. And compromise is a real thing. Yeah. Did I pronounce that right, by yeah, the way? Yeah, you okay. did. Yeah. So my question is that if a, if a, co a country is as mobbed up and if the purse strings are as tightly controlled as they are in Russia, how does any corporation, not just Starbucks, which is the one I'm thinking of, but any corporation that goes over there, and there are Starbucks all over mm -hmm. Moscow, which I looked at. I was mm -hmm. like, well, is it, so Russia, Starbucks, Starbucks is in Russia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're not going to just let Starbucks open stores all over Moscow for nothing, are they? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Right? Okay. I, can't, <laughs> I cannot say. Um, I, I think... Um, that there's probably a, a way business gets done. Um, and and I'm not sure. You know, I remember in the 90s, there was a Pizza Hut, and we frequented it when we were there in the mid-90s. Um, and there's, there's this, like, famous first McDonald's in Moscow that was actually, like, uh, a place that... Uh, I guess in Moscow, you know, um, Russians were not eating out a lot because it was extremely expensive. Um, and then this, this, this first McDonald's opened and it became a hub for like people to come and socialize and gather and eat out in a casual way that wasn't exorbitant. Um, it actually just closed, which, uh, I think the New York Times wrote this amazing article about just kind of that, that, cultural, um, like oasis, you know, shutting down and, and maybe the reasons behind it. And is this a sign of, of, you know, a less, a less open to the West Moscow. Well, maybe the um, executives at McDonald's weren't willing to pay off the rest yeah, of the Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, I don't know, but I, I do think, um, from everything I've read about, about the nineties and the early two thousands that it was tough to do business there and not be, you know, Paying, paying bribes somehow. And, and yeah. I just think because of Putin's background in the intelligence service, right? He was like mm -hmm. KGB, yeah. and, you know, like, wouldn't they, if they have some big American corporation, they have big business people coming over trying to close deals, they would record that stuff. They would want it for leverage. 
I'm just like, it's just, yeah. it's just, I'm just saying it's not beyond the realm of possibility in the world that we're living in. Right. Well, and I think, you know, you probably, if you're, you're in that world, you go into those meetings with that understanding, you, you know, would, you would hope, but maybe not like, you know, I think there's maybe there could, I mean, you know what, it's possible that they're way smarter and way, they have people who are way more tuned into what's going on in Russia. But like, I don't think five years ago. I would have put that together or even pre 2016, you know, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have necessarily been there in my head that like, yeah. Oh my God, this whole place is run by the mob. But I, I guess- mean, I think, and I don't, I don't, I don't know that the whole place is run by the mob. I think it's, it's more, you know, an awareness that there is, um, I think there are, there are fewer restraints on the government in that way. Like the, the, like, you know, bugging and, and stuff like my mom, you know, talked about her, her, she shared like a communal apartment with, with a couple other, um, people who was sort of like an open secret that they were her minders in a way when she was there, you know, that they were keeping tabs on her as an American and she and my dad both lived there. And so, and their, you know, their room was bugged. Um, sure, and yeah. I think, you know, you just, you, she was very much aware of that. And, you know, um, I think most people probably who are going to Russia to do business have some level of awareness of, of the history of that and, and, you know, how common it was in that era. And, you know, I, I don't know what, what it's like now, whether it's like like four or five years now, you know, from now or whatever it is, we do find out that this is, you know, this happened. People can reference this episode of the podcast. Yeah. yeah, You predicted it. (laughs) So I want to get into your, um, we, we, you talked a bit about the, um, the writing of your novel over this period of seven years, but, uh, I want to hear more about like your education and how you got to where you got to the point where you could start to write a novel. So like, where'd you go to school? Did you study writing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I went to Princeton for my undergraduate, um, degree and I did take a lot of creative writing classes there. Were you uh, what is it called? Language? What was it called? Critical no, language? I wasn't a critical. No, 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 no. Um, so I studied with Joyce Carol Oates and Shangri Lee and Edmund White. Um, John McPhee was there too. I did not take his class though. Sadly, I wish if I could go back in time. Um, but, and then I went to Michigan for my MFA. Uh, and then I, I kind of like did a fellowship hop around the country. I, um, was at, at university of Wisconsin, Madison for their creative writing fellowship. And then what does that mean? You just like you teach um, and you get paid to, you just get paid to write basically. Uh, yeah, there at, at UW, I did teach. Um, but then I did the Stegner where, where you don't teach. It's just literally time to write and you workshop. Have, you spent and, some time in Michigan and Wisconsin. Cause I do, I feel a certain, cause I'm, I was born in Milwaukee. Okay. I was like, yeah. I feel a sort of Michigan, Wisconsin so, vibe. Yeah. Madison <laughs> is like my spirit place. I really want to go back to the ASMS. I'm into it. Um, yeah, yeah. I love the cold too. Um, yeah. So I do miss the Midwest. Um, but, but yeah, then I ended up at, at Stanford and, um, I applied to the Stegner with the very first chapter of the novel. So, and and you got the Stegner fellowship. I didn't Mm -hmm. know that. Yeah. Wow. So you're well-educated. Yes. And the Stegner is like, that's like the golden ticket of fellowships. It's like two years. It's two years. Um, and a lot of time to write. So we would do workshops on Wednesdays. Um, did you live up there? I lived up there. Yeah. I lived in, in the city. Yeah. Um, and I had, uh, my, my oldest daughter there. I was like, I have health insurance. Who knows when I will again? Yeah, right. Let's do this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But did you get a lot of work done when you I got a ton of work done. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I think I got through the first draft really, um, during the Stegner. So, you know, I applied 
for the segment and then you don't hear for I don't know like eight or nine months so I was working on the novel that whole time uh and then when I got in I had close to a close to a full first draft although when I first wrote through the end of the novel the end was terrible like it just did not work at all um and uh, there's this like Edward P. Jones quote about how he always knows he's going to bring his his um, reader from Washington to Baltimore. And I feel like I had Washington and like we started up 95 and then I just ended up at like a terrible rest stop. And it was just like <laughs> awful, awful. Um, it was like a, yeah, like a broken bathroom. <laughs> um, but uh, but but yeah, I, I ended up. um staring at it basically for six months without writing a word and that was definitely the hardest part of of finishing the because novel of just the, because of the end i needed to just figure out kind of analytically how to make the end work like i had i had been very immersed in this like idea of writing as a spiritual endeavor of like the muse singing to you and the characters leading you and i felt really betrayed so about a month was just like me sitting there feeling betrayed like why did the muse abandoned me. I like um, this. Yeah. I like bitterness. Good. Yeah, it just <laughs> it was very bitter. Um, and then uh, I ended up pulling the two plot lines apart. So the, the Russia storyline and the America storyline, I sort of unbraided them and looked at them each with an eye towards whether they were fulfilling the basics of craft. You know, did they have an arc? Did they have tension? Did they, did they have a resolution? And once I kind of narrowed my focus to each each plot line individually, I, I was able to unlock the end. And Did you rebraid then? Yeah, then I rebraided. I mean, when when you realize what's wrong with an ending, it's always like way further upstream. So I basically had to rewrite the book, but you know, I rebraided it as I as I wrote. Interesting. Yeah, oh, that's an inter- that's an interesting insight. Something's wrong with the end. It's usually behind you. Yeah, way behind problems. you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Uh, so did you have when you do a Stegner, you have some sort of mentorship happening? Yeah. Or, or are you just like do you have like somebody that is helping you work through your book. Is that the way that it goes? Um, sort of. You you do three workshops a year, each led by a different faculty member. Um, so, you know, like Tobias Wolf, Elizabeth Talent, Richard Powers was there when I was there. Um, Adam Johnson. Wait, didn't Richard Powers just win? He did, the yeah, Pulitzer? for the overstory. Yeah. Right. Um, so you work with, uh, you know, a specific teacher for each workshop session. Um, and you can workshop a whole novel. So I workshopped the novel twice. So, um I had, you know, I think I worked with Tobias Wolf once, so he and I got into it on on the novel for a while there, um, as did everyone else in the workshop. And then I think I workshopped it with Elizabeth Talent the next year, another draft. Wow. So then it's pretty substantive. Like you felt like really, like you got a lot of energy. No, I got, yeah, no, I got incredible feedback. Um, Tony Morrow was, was in my workshop. He had just had a constellation of vital phenomena come out. So he was a great reader. Um, since he, it's set in Chechnya, he's very much immersed in that world also. Um, yeah. So it was, it was incredible. Um, and mostly, you know, because it's just really generous and gives you all this time to write. I mean, you literally only have to be on campus on Wednesday. Um, yeah. And what are they, may I ask what they pay? What does a Stegner Fellowship pay? Um, yeah, I think it was around thirty grand plus health insurance, which is considerable. I mean, now that I'm, I'm sadly no longer getting health insurance through Stanford. It's you, yeah, it's expensive. And you have access to like the Bay Area's fine medical facilities. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, That's great. Yeah. Um, when did you know you were done? I mean, you go through this long like six month period of just staring at it and trying to figure out the end, and then you, you know, you eventually. F- tease it apart, find your, find out what the problem is, go back and address the problem. And then you get like to the, to the end. Do you remember it? Uh, 
No. So <laughs> no, no. I think like by then you're so close to it that it's actually really hard to know when you're done. I get really jealous when I read other authors and they're like, they had this like real sense of closure and they're like, I don't know. I saw someone post on Instagram. She like went in her backyard and like laid down in the grass and stared up at the clouds. Oh, and I feel like, already. yeah, like I just sent it to my agent and was like, fingers crossed. <laughs> we'll see. Um, no. So I had actually, you know, worked, worked a lot with my agent. She, she helped me on a lot of different, um, revisions of the novel and Who's your agent? Samantha Shea. Okay. Um, she's with George Borchardt. Okay. Uh, yeah, she's wonderful. And so she had, um, she had helped me edit it for about a year. And then I sent her the latest draft. We had been working on sort of like one character specifically. Which character? Um, <laughs> uh, we had been working on Gabe. Okay. Um, yeah, Gabe and his role in the story. And we, um, we, we, yeah, I, I felt like I had gotten, I'd gotten closer. Um, and I hoped that it was there. But when I sent it to her and she wrote me back and was like, it's ready, I was still very shocked. Like, I, I totally thought she could have said, okay, so like now let's switch our focus to, you know, XYZ character. And we would have just gone through the whole book like that over and over. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, you know, I think left to your own devices, you could probably do. You need somebody to tell you. Yeah. Who that you it's trust. time. Like, hey, it's time. Like, yeah. We've um, taken this as far as we can. Eat. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think she was right. Um, I think, you know, it, 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 all happened pretty quickly after that. So okay. So um, just before we get to that, how did you find your agent? Like I'm imagining if you're a Stegner fellow, there's agents like swarming. Yeah, I found her. I think before the Stegner though, she read a short story of mine. The, the short story with Sadie um, as the main character. She read it in Glimmer Train and just reached out to me. Um, and and yeah, I talked to her on the phone and and we hit it off and we seemed to see eye to eye. And then I sent her the first 50 or so pages of the novel when I had them and I liked her thoughts and her enthusiasm for it. And um, yeah, so it's just so, important to have somebody who gets it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on and, its own terms. Yeah. No. And, and I think, you know, um, I liked that uh, she was she she was relatively young, and I, I felt like she was like giving me a lot of time and attention. She's very dogged in sending out stories, which I appreciate, and she and she reads all my stories for me too, which is awesome. Um, so I feel like I really get a lot of her time and attention, and it feels like we're in like a great partnership. That's great. Yeah. That's yeah. great. So you get the manuscript ready, you uh, get to. Uh, I guess crafting some sort of sub submission strategy with Samantha, right? Yeah. So she did that. She did that. Yeah. So she comes back to you and she says, here's the, it's what, like what? 10, seven, five, whatever the number is. I want to say 12, but okay. don't quote me on that. I think it was around 12. Yeah. But yeah like something like that. It's yeah. usually like a short list. And usually the way that this part of it goes and correct me if I'm uh, mistaken with you, but like typically like agents will go out to like, you got to the, the ones you want. Like, yeah. this is our A-list. Let's try. Yeah. And if it doesn't work out this round, then we'll we'll reassess and go out to the next round. Yeah. Um, so you come up with your, you know, dozen um, top editors mm -hmm. and houses that you'd want to place the book with. She submits it. She tells you. Mm -hmm. Book went out today. And then what? And then um, she started telling me that there was interest pretty quickly. Um, I think it was maybe a week of, or like five days of silence, which was really nerve wracking. Uh. Um, and then, and then, you know, there's, there was interest. So then I started having phone calls 
with editors, as I remember it. Um, That's a good sign. Yeah. And I had a phone call with one editor who had moved from Russia as a kid and she loved it. And so that was really encouraging to me. Um, I had had friends of mine who are Russian read it. But, um, (laughs) but like, but no, I was, I was really excited that she, you know, she thought maybe for my first name that I was Russian. I was like, no, my mom's a Russophile. I am not Russian, but I'm really glad that you, you were into it. So I had, uh, think four phone calls with editors. Um, and it's funny cause you know, when you have those phone calls, they're, they're so, uh, complimentary and excited about the, the book. And, you know, they kind of tell you a few things about what direction you might want to take it once you decide where you're going to publish it. And then after you choose, you get the editorial letter and you're like, wait a second. I thought you liked this book. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. Like, yeah gloves are off. <laughs> um, it's like, was there one character who moved you or, um, so but no, that, that was, that was fun. You know, it was, that was kind of the first positive feedback I'd been getting except from Samantha. Um, and so uh, even after all the drafts you'd been through all the years you'd spent all the back and forth with Samantha, all the Tobias Wolf and, you know, all these people at the Stegner fellowship giving you like really good professional considered feedback, mm-hmm. you then submit, you get the, you know, you get a book deal mm-hmm. And the editor sends you a letter and there's a litany of things you've got to address. Yeah. And, you know, I think it it seemed worse than it was sort of when I actually started revising. You know, I think uh, my editor, Emily Cunningham, who's who's also wonderful, I think we, we probably edited for between four and six months together. Um, and it wasn't a, an overhaul like the previous revisions. It was more, you know, this cosmetic. thread or, co- yeah, um, more, a little more than cosmetic, but, um, but it definitely didn't feel like I have to take this sucker apart, you know, which, which was a fear of mine for sure. No, un- um, no unbraiding and no unbraiding and rebraiding. <laughs> no. Yeah. There wasn't like any bitterness happening, no more phases of that. So, um, so yeah, you know, I think I, I it felt like it was pretty close once, once those four months were over and then, you know, it was just copy edits and, and on. And then the yeah. book is now out in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And how has that been for you? So wonderful. It is. Not, yeah. It's not like any kind of like, like let down like, Oh no, no. I, I think, you know, I've been alone with these characters for so long. Um, and just never knowing, you know, if, if this would happen, if, if it would actually become a book. So I feel really grateful and excited and, um, yeah, you know, I don't know. I got my first like Goodreads where somebody said, Oh, what did they say? It was like too, um, not crude. It was like something like lecherous or something. They, they, they didn't love the lecherousness of the novel. And I was like, yes, <laughs> um, just like reveling in it. Like even the bad reviews, you know, you, you, you just see what you, what you can take from it and, well, and people move are on. responding, you know, yeah, people it, are responding. And I mean, I've been really lucky that most of the reviews have been good. Um, and I've been on a great tour. Uh, and it's just amazing to see that other people are, are thinking of these characters in the way that you, you imagined them, you know? So that's been really rewarding. Did you have books that you were working off as models or like inspiration? Did you have like a short list that most yeah. people do? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Um, so let the great world spin is a favorite of mine. And and uh, there's a relationship between the brothers in that novel that was like very much like um, that's it, Col- Colin McCann. Yeah, yeah, it, very inspirational to me in in crafting Vladimir and Ilya's relationship, the brothers in my novel. Um, and then you wouldn't be able to like draw the line, but I uh, I did 
these plot maps of um, Larry Brown's father and son and Citrus County by John Brandon. Um, they don't have too much in common with mine, but they are um, they have fast plots and they are kind of spare. So they seem to me like really good ones to break apart and see, you know, how how did the plot work in this? And I was actually this was a non-fellowship year. And I was living in my in-laws attic in South Carolina. Uh, and I remember I made like hundreds of index cards with each little plot movement and like pasted them all over the walls. And my mother-in-law came upstairs and she had this look like when like the detective <laughs> discovers the serial killer's lair and was just like, oh no, like, oh no. You don't understand. Howard <laughs> Schultz is a spy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So that really helped me though, you know, to, to break those books apart and just see each little digestible chunk and to just feel like, okay, this is approachable. Like this is something it can be broken down and I too can break it down with my own book and make this happen. Um, so stop there. Cause this is interesting to me. You plot map books that you admire. Yes. And by plot map, you meaning like each movement scene, yeah, Whatever, so something I, happens, it's like you you note card it. So I took it. Yeah, it would take a chapter, and there would probably be, probably be like a dozen note cards for a given chapter, like every little movement that happened in that chapter, and then I would put those in one clump, and that was like chapter one. And I feel like with one of the books, I even color coded like, is this a development of this character's storyline or this character's? And then I ran out of some color of index card, so that ceased. But but yeah, I tried to get really specific and see, you know, okay, like in each chapter, each storyline is being progressed this much. And, you know, what are the, how much does that happen in scene? How much does that happen in exposition? What are the ways that this happens? What are the tiny turns? Just looking at all of it and trying to look at it really mechanically instead of letting yourself be immersed in the story. Like in some ways, I feel like becoming a writer and writing has sort of ruined me for that pure pleasure of reading. I, you know, I, um, I can relate to that. It's like you can just see the little the little turns happening and the the um the necessity of it for the writer sometimes in a way that, you know, in the best books you hope that that you don't feel that. But yeah, but it's, yeah. I mean you can see it's like, you know, it's like uh I was a fil I have a film degree and so you start to see the boom microphones. Yeah, exactly. You do everything yeah. deconstructively. You can see the seams, yeah. But um did you ever find yourself when you were trying to then map the plot of your own book? Did you ever look at, say, a mapped chapter of Larry Brown and then say, well, let me just try to map mm -hmm. something like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, were you using it like as like, yeah. a, like a direct inspiration? No, I wish this was earlier in the drafting stage. So this was like before I got to the Stegner when I was sort of, I had Ilya's character. I knew that I was writing about his backstory also in Russia. Um, and I had this sort of vague sense of the direction I wanted to take it. And I, I did plot map those, but then I didn't actually plot map my own. Um, I did not outline my own, which is why I think I got to that terrible ending and, you know, had that six months of bitterness because I hadn't, I hadn't planned. I thought that if I planned out the book, I would, um, I would narrow the character's options in a way that might feel, um, forced, which I think is another thing that you kind of, you pick up in, in, in workshop and stuff, this idea that, that, um, that the character needs to lead you. And I do think think that that's true to some extent, but I think that, um, that if you don't have like any sense of, of where you want to end up, he, the characters can really lead you astray and life is only so long. Right. So like, I, I do think that Ilya would have eventually led me to this end, but I think that I could have followed him down a lot of rabbit holes first. Right. So yeah, I mean, yeah it's like, so like 
on subsequent books? Is it like try to just at least have the the broad contours of the end figured out before you begin so you know where you're headed, even if the route that you take becomes circuitous? Yeah. So, I mean, for, for the second book, I'm lucky because I, I sold it based on a screenplay I'd written. So I actually have the whole plot figured out for that one. Wait, you sold uh, the book based on a script? Yes, I did. I um, I sent the the novel out with a script I'd written. Um, so I I love to write exposition and interiority, and um, those are like the things I always tend to write. And I love books that are really heavy on on those those elements of craft too. And I wrote a screenplay to sort of. Um, kind of train myself to write more dialogue, to write more forward momentum, to write, you know, the three act structure and, um, to focus on plot and not a bad exercise. No. And I loved it. And then, you know, I, I really liked the end result and, um, I revised it a couple of times. And when I sent out the first novel, I, I, you know, sent it out too, and just said, I want to write a, I want to write a second book based on this. So, wow. um, I've never heard anybody do that before. So Usually it's the other way around. You sell a, you know, you, you get a, a movie deal based on a book, but right. not a book deal based on a script. Right, right. I don't yeah. think I've ever talked to anybody who's done that. Yeah. So, um, so I'm working on that one now and it's, it's really early days, but, um, but, but yeah, I feel, you know, my hope is that it will go a lot more quickly since I have, I have the plot in place for this one. How did you do the script? Did you, did you use like the screenwriting books to teach yourself and no. did you just, you just, <laughs> no, my husband's a screenwriter though. So uh, I have read his scripts. So I like really vaguely knew the format, but I'm sure it was totally busted. I uh, mean, it was like, um, like, I guess it's like when someone's off screen, you use like certain, I don't know, like OS or, yes. you know, so I was like trying to do all those acronyms and make it seem really professional, but I think it's, it's still really description heavy too. Like there's a couple paragraphs at the beginning of every scene. So I don't think it would work as a professional screenplay, but, right, right. but it, but you know, it, it worked for me in, in getting a story that had a lot of, a lot of forward momentum and well, plot. What it, and what it basically functions as is a detailed outline. Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, it was a kind of a way to trick myself, I guess, into writing an outline. Like there's something just about the word outline that to me is so dry and terrible. It just reminds me of writing, you know, like, screenplay. yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> screenplay was more exciting. What is yeah. your husband like have produced screenplays and stuff? like So that? he, uh, he made this short, um, that, that did well and we moved here and he's been working on the feature version of it. Um, so that's, I think he's, that's out right now. So cross your fingers. We'll see. Oh, it's like out, yeah. out, like out on the town, out on the town. And yeah. like the short was, uh, it was like a short it's like 10, 15 minute film. Yeah. It's called the chair and it, um, it played at can. It was up for a palm door. So we got to go to can, which is really fun. Wow. Um, and exciting. And then, yeah, he's, he's been working on, on the feature version for a while. Um, wow. so it's exciting that he's, he's finished it up. Yeah. Kudos. It's hard. Yeah. You know, all this stuff is hard. Like I'm listening to you talk about this book and I'm like, God, like, you have got to have some grit and you have to really want it and you have to be patient and you have to be tough. Yeah. Well, I think too, you hit a point of no return. Right. I mean, at a certain point you've like gambled on this big time, you know? Yeah. Um, and you, you know, you're cobbling together a living in other ways usually. Um, and just hoping that, that this pays off because otherwise you're, you're screwed. Yeah. You know? So did you, okay, the book goes out, you had like multiple interests, it sounds like you're talking yeah. to editors on the mm-hmm. phone. Yeah. They did an auction. Yeah. Were you yeah. on the phone? Were you on the conference call? No, no not, no. Just... The auction was more like my agent emailing me and calling me with updates. Okay. Um, yeah. I think there was like a very specific time deadline as I remember. And, uh, 
And yeah, that was nerve wracking, like but, knowing that like the offers had to be in by this specific time. And then I would get updates from my agent about like who had bid what and where we were. And, and I will not ask you to, um, offer specifics, but like it, you got a good advance yeah. for the book. Yeah. I, I felt like I did. Yeah. I think I, you know, I got a great advance and I was really excited that it was a two book deal. Um, I think, you know, like I was saying, you hit that point of no return and I really didn't want to feel like that sort of risk for the second book. I really wanted a sense of stability and a sense of being able to treat this like a long-term job, like not having the uncertainty between books and, and having um, a home. Yeah. Like writers really just want to have a home. Yeah. I like, mean, I write in bed. Like I don't need a lot. I just like, <laughs> right. you know, and just like, yeah. you know, like there's not a, there's not a writer I've ever talked to who doesn't love their agent. And there's not a writer I've ever talked to. Oh, really? I've talked to a lot of writers who don't. Well, their current agent. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, That's that, well put. Yeah. Unless <laughs> the agent is like, they're in the process of dumping or like transitioning to someone else. But like the point that I'm trying to make is that like writers want to feel like they have advocate, you know, advocacy on the agency side and they want to feel like they have ag advocacy on the uh, editorial and publishing side. Yeah. And you do all this work in isolation and you need these people to help you make your dream come true. Yeah. So when there are people who are like, I will be that person, you're like, I love you automatically yeah. and forever. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you get me. And I, yeah. I, I understand that whole dynamic. And then, um, you know, hopefully you find readers too. And, um, you know, the, the word spreads, but, um, with regard to this particular book as a debut that with an auction and with, um, I'm, you know, some industry buzz and with, um, you know, you did a big tour, mm -hmm. like did the publisher send you on the tour? Were mm -hmm. you doing the tour? But it was, yeah. so like they put some muscle into marketing for you. Yeah, no, I mean, Penguin Press has been amazing. They've, they've really given the book a lot of attention and, and yeah, I've been really appreciative of it. They are, I, could not imagine a better place for it to have landed. And what about movie stuff? Like, has there already been any, like, um, you know, I think my, so I think how it works is that Samantha, my agent has like an, a, an agent she's affiliated with in some way who will, who will try to shop the rights around. So no rights have been bought for the movie yet, but I would love for that to happen for sure. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, like, I can write the screenplay in bed, just like, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I'm done with this one. <laughs> yeah. Somebody else yeah. can write it. We'll outsource yeah. that. Um, so you have another book, like, like how far are you into the, I mean, you've written this really, really early. really early. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I've hit upon the voice. So of course, like that didn't come with the screenplay. So that was, that was a bit of a hurdle. Um, and I don't want to give away too much of, of what it's about. Cause I feel like that's like telling people what you're going to name your kid. It's just like, you never get the reaction you're hoping for, you know? Um, but, uh, but, but no, it's, it's going well. And yeah, writing with it, with a screenplay in place versus an outline in place feels really, um, really comforting. Well, and it's also like, I mean, for somebody who just like, you know, you're coming off of a book that took you almost a decade. Yeah. It's always the dream where it's like, well, a novel's just going to shoot out of me. That is the dream. We'll see. That, yeah, we'll see, right? Too, it's yeah. Like, you know, one of these like feverish six month like, yeah. writing binges. What's and... been weird is I didn't think I would be able to write at all this past month, but I've written two short stories. Like short stories are somehow spewing out of me. I haven't been able to work on the new novel since the book came out. This month has been like, I've been traveling a ton and just feels like too much to dip in and out. But, but yeah, I've been... I've been really loving writing short stories, which I haven't done in, in a long time. Do you I mean, read a lot of them? Yeah, I read a lot of short stories. I read more novels, though. And honestly, I read like I'm reading nonfiction about Russia kind of like always. Um, you know, I thought I would 
be done with that when I finish the novel, but it turns out no. You and your mom. Um, yeah, I'm yeah, reading Black Earth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I don't know what, where that will leave me, but it does. It definitely doesn't inform the next one. The next one's not set in Russia. And what about like? Because I, I was reading you in conversation in an interview you did, when you were talking about your interest in this collision between like literary fiction and mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is this is this your mode? Like, is it is it just your mode for this book, or is it your mode? going forward it's 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 not my mode necessarily going forward but i'll say that like i love plot and i feel like sometimes in literary fiction plot can become like a dirty word and i just like whatever form the plot might take i want there to be a lot of forward momentum and tension and like that's what i'm drawn to reading and it's what i like to write like i like that feeling of like almost fear i feel like i'm often writing from a place of fear and so i like to have that inform what i'm creating um, you, you want to be a little bit afraid as yeah a, a little bit afraid or like a little bit horrified a little bit you know i just want to be like sweating when i'm writing kind of i think that's and turning the pages yeah and turning the pages there's yeah. nothing wrong with that it's yeah like there's something no. very right with that yeah where it's like you know because i think sometimes there can be this attitude in uh, among people in like the literary fiction set where it's like i'm deliberately challenging the reader and i understand that my book is only for a certain right right it it just gets a little precious to me and it's like hey like it would be probably beneficial for everyone involved if there were cross-pollination like i always advocate for cross-pollination where it's like people who are literary fiction great that's great yeah but like maybe read some genre fiction to like get a a better sense of plot or read a screenwriting book to get a sense of structure and vice versa. Like maybe if you're a genre person, it's like maybe read some, you know, some literary fiction that's great on interiority and character. Right. right. And see if you can't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I don't know. That rubs off. I I felt it very much like, um, I was saying maybe even before we started, just how like I was immediately leaning in Mm -hmm. when I was reading, uh, that opening chapter, like it's immediate. And I appreciate that because it's not always the case. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You're like, yeah. great. Yay. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it, it, knowing that backstory and that that was your intention and then seeing it in execution, you know, just sort of um, makes it make sense. Yeah. Well, I think, too, you know, like I was saying that there's comfort in the screenplay as a structure for the second one. But there was there was comfort, too, in relying on, you know, the the sort of known movements of a mystery. Um you know, you know that it's not going to be the first suspect. Um, it's it's usually like the third, say, like in a Mary Higgins Clark book, right? And so, just just being able to rely on some of those those tropes as a way to to narrow your focus really can help. Especially, you know, I think when it's your first book, having having some ways to limit all those directions the character might go. You know, I feel like you you avoid some of those rabbit holes that way. Do you read? Um, like, do you read genre mystery? Like so fiction? I grew up. I grew up listening to it. So I had a long drive to from school and my mom and I would listen to books on tape every morning for an hour and then we'd drive home and we'd listen and then we'd just sit in the driveway and keep listening and um, yeah, like Mary Higgins Clark and then her daughter I think like took over writing her stuff and then Sue Grafton, like A is for alibi and B is for, I don't remember what. Um, uh, (laughs) And you know, Agatha Christie and I love like Tana French and yeah, I just, I I really like mystery. I still listen to it. I'm listening to No Exit right now, which is more thriller. Um, What is that? Who's who's that by? uh, It's by Taylor Adams. Okay. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's, it's a bit more even horror, um, which I wasn't anticipating, but, but it's, it's definitely, you know, gripping. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so I'm like I'm like hiking in Griffith Park, kind of like twitching at every sound. Um, that fucking mountain lion. Yeah. It's always in the back of my head up there. I'm like, I'm going to be the one who gets well, eaten by that lion. Yeah, I think it wasn't there. There was a period of time when there was like a series of beheadings in Griffith Park, I think. And I think now, of that always. I wrote up. I was writing about that in the book that I've been working oh, on. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's what I think about. Sadly, I'm never like the view. The I'm beheadings like, didn't take place in Griffith. It was just where the head was like buried. Okay. And then okay. some dog. That's a relief. Like yeah. some dog walkers were up there and like the dog found the head. Right. And was right. Like, Look. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, macabre, but like very like on brand for LA. You know, it's very like, uh, what's the Ross McDonald or who's the famous Raymond Chandler. Oh yeah. 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 Very like Raymond yeah. Chandler, the head in Griffith park. Um, well, you know, and I think listening to you too talk about all of these different life experiences that you've had and like creative, um, and readerly, um, experiences that you've had. What strikes me is that you put together your book by um, kind of stitching together all of these disparate elements, but like spinning them. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I guess I, you know, I talked to, it's, it's, it's not auto fiction. You know, no. this is yeah. an extension of plot. Like you, yeah. you, you were concerned with plot, but like it all, but there's also once I, you know, have a conversation with you and you start to learn about all the different things that went into it, it's all you in there. Yeah. But you just found ways to reconstitute it into like a really gripping narrative that, um, you know, was very much of you, but was all, you know, was also outside of, outside of you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I really like to make those imaginative leaps. I mean, that's like, that's the joy of writing fiction to me. Um, and I think as long as you have like emotional ways in or emotional like touchstones with the character, you can, you can feel, you know, and as long as you do research and make sure you're doing a responsible representation, you can, you can make those leaps and then it's up to the reader whether or not you got it right. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, and you wrote a, and you wrote a, uh, protagonist who's male. Yeah. Um, that was a leap. Well, that was a leap. Yeah. And did you like, did you like say to your husband, like, Hey, does this like sound yeah. like a dude? I mean, yeah, yeah, I definitely, I definitely had him read it. He was my, um, yeah, he was, he was a sensitivity reader for the, for the male protagonist. And then, um, you know, I had my Russian, I had, I have two Russian friends who read it, um, who actually moved to the States in their teens. So that was, that was lucky that I had them and that they were willing to, to look at it with a really critical eye for me and tell me, you know, where are you getting it right? Where are you getting it wrong? Um, yeah. Well, and there's, is there any Russia in the second book? You, you, no very, Russia. Okay. No and, Russia. Like, and like, not even like a, a very basic log line. No, no. Although this, this short story that I just started working on is set in Russia. So oh. I'm not done. I okay. just can't quit. And yeah. the second novel it, mystery. Can we just go? I mean, is it like, no, it's it have... dystopian. Dystopian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's all I'm going to get out of Lydia Fitzpatrick yeah. about her second novel. It's dystopian. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, congratulations. It's great to meet you. Uh, for those, like Lydia is my neighbor. I didn't even realize this, but she lives right here in LA and not that far away. So yeah. thanks I'm, for having me. Yeah. I'm glad that it was, uh, like not, you know, terrible traffic or anything. Not like at that. all. No. All right. I'll see you on large mind. All right. Well, yeah. Good to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. You too. Okay. That is Lydia Fitzpatrick. Her debut novel, Lights All Night Long, is available now from Penguin Press. You can find her on the internet at LydiaFitzpatrick.com. I, uh, I don't know if she has social media. I'm not seeing any. A cursory glance at the uh, internet bears no results. Lydia Fitzpatrick, Lights All Night Long. Go get your copy right now. 
Thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to support this program, if you enjoy it, and you want to throw a few bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to get the app, you can do that for free. The Other People with Brad Listy app is an app that you can uh, download onto your phone. It's free. It's a great way to listen, keep track of the show, and uh, so on and so forth. It's an excellent app, and it's free. Uh, Next week on the podcast, my guest will be Saskia Vogel. She, too, has a debut novel out that is making waves. It is called Permission, and uh, I had a great talk with her. So stay tuned for Saskia Vogel next week. Uh, What else? Happy Mother's Day, belated to uh, all the moms out there. The many hundreds of thousands of moms who listen to this podcast on a weekly basis. So I will talk to you all next week. I hope you have a wonderful day, whatever day it is. You could be listening to this 200 years from now. Hello, future Earthlings. It is 2019. (laughs) 